Hey, this is Howard Jacobson. Welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. My guest today is Dr. Garth Davis, who is Medical Director of Surgical Weight Loss at Memorial Harmon Memorial City Hospital in Houston, Texas. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy day to talk to us today. Garth, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Happy to be here, Howard. Awesome. Well, we uh, we became uh, PowerPoint buddies last week after uh, share, sharing some slides back and forth. Those of uh, some presentations you attended at, at a different conference, and then uh, attending the same conference. And I was really eager to to get you on the phone. I have to say, this is a bit of an unusual interview. I wanted to talk to you so quickly, so badly that I didn't really have time to prepare. So the question I'm asking is honestly stuff. I don't know, and I would love to find out. So, well, sure. first, first have of a all, conversation about it. Yeah, like like real people talking. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so, I'm, first of all, I'm curious about your day job as medical director of surgical weight loss. Can you tell tell me a little bit about what what that is? Yeah. Yeah, and I'll kind of give you a little backstory on myself a bit. So, um, I um. I'm a surgeon. I'm a general surgeon. I got out of my surgical residency in 2001 and joined the biggest hospital in Houston. And at the time, they weren't doing any surgical weight loss. But as you know, Houston is uh, one of the heaviest cities in the country, and there was a huge demand for surgical weight loss. And my hospital had a medical weight loss program, but they weren't doing very well with it. And um, the chairman of surgery asked me to start looking into it, and I started looking into it. And it was good data, and so I started doing surgical weight loss. And in fact, people did fantastic. So we did, you know, gastric bypass, and now we do gastric sleeve and duodenal switch. Um, and people were doing fantastic. And now this whole time I was doing the surgery, I wasn't really saying too much about diet for patients. I was just, you know, um, eat whatever. But you know, the funny thing about Western medicine, and Howard, I think you know this. I imagine your listeners do too. But it was a little bit amazing for me to find out or, or really start thinking about it in myself, but doctors don't think of food at all as part of a treatment plan for a patient or as part of the reason they got there to begin with. You know, we don't learn about nutrition in medical school. We don't talk about it much. Even like, you know, I'll go to my weight loss surgery conferences and we'll spend all day sitting there, you know, talking about what kind of surgery we could do to help people lose weight, but no one talks about food ever. And so I saw people doing well with weight loss surgery, and then I started seeing people come back gaining weight. And at the same time, I got tested for a life insurance policy, and my cholesterol was sky high, and my blood pressure was high, and my belly was getting bigger. And uh, and I said, there's just got to be something wrong. So I started studying nutrition. And since then, I've kind of become – I'm the medical director of our surgical weight loss program at the hospital, and I still do surgical weight loss, but I've really become a big advocate of plant-based diets, which really changed my health and the health of many of my patients. And and now I also run medical weight loss or plant-based weight loss uh, in my practice. Huh. Did, did did it feel like it was a courageous decision to to start looking, you know, further upstream for, for the causes, you know, it seems, it seems it, like you're, you're turning your back on your bread and butter a little bit. Right. Yeah, it did. I guess, I don't know. I never really thought about it as courageous. Uh, that's very nice if you want to. I. It seemed, you know, it just, uh, you know, something nags in the back of your mind. It was more like that. Like, like it, it did feel a little bit like I, I, my colleagues in the beginning were like, what are you trying to do? You're trying to, like, take yourself out of business? 
Um, and, you know, I'm not taking people, I'm not taking surgical weight loss surgeons out of business. They do a good job, and there's a lot of people that need the surgery for sure. Um, but I just didn't feel, something didn't feel right. I, I just didn't feel right treating patients with medicines or with surgeries without addressing the central problem we have in America. One of my favorite quotes comes from Wendell Berry, who said, you know, the problem that we have in this country is that we have a healthcare system that doesn't care about food and a food care system that doesn't care about health. <laughs> and I feel like I just want to work on both of those sides. Beautiful. So when you started getting interested in nutrition, there are plenty of people, and it sounds like you came at this from a weight loss perspective as opposed to necessarily sort of global health. Um, why on earth did you end up in this camp when there's many more books, you know, for, for the, in the low carb, the paleo, the grain brain, the big fat lies? How, how did you decide that this yeah. was where you wanted to be instead of somewhere yeah. else? I really said, I really stopped and said, this is ridiculous that we have all these diets out there, but yet we're the fattest country in the world. And and I was coming at it at diet, but I was also coming at it, you got to understand, when I see patients, you know, they come in and they're worried about their weight, but most of them are worried about the fact that they're on 10 medicines and they have diabetes and high cholesterol. And as most doctors look at everything as, you know, but you got your diabetic doctor looking at the diabetes, not caring at all about the heart, and the hot doctor is not caring about the diabetes, and and I started seeing this kind of like, this is ridiculous how we're treating the person as like multiple parts instead of as a whole. And so I wanted, I guess what really got me was, okay, we're the, if we're the sickest country in the world, who's the healthiest country in the world? And what are they doing? And that kind of started me on this road to studying patterns of eating in other countries uh, and looking at what they're eating. I was very uh, intrigued with the Blue Zone, which wasn't really a scientific study, but an interesting correlation study. And then when I read the Adventist Health Study, that really started me thinking. Um, and for those people that don't know, the Seventh-day Adventists live in Loma, Linda, California. So the Blue Zones went around to find the healthiest people in the world, and the longest-living healthiest people in the world actually are in America, and it's at Loma, Linda, California. And they did a really great study there where they followed these people for many, many years, and they're a great, great group to study in Loma, Linda, because none of them smoke for the most part. Most of them do the same amount of exercise, but some of them are vegan. Some of them are vegetarian. Some are pescatarian. Some eat chicken but no red meat, and some eat all meats. And no matter what you look at, the more plant-based you were, the longer you lived, the less heart disease you had, the less diabetes. And that really got me thinking. And so I really started doing a lot of research. And when you research it, there's no question about what the best diet is. I mean, there's all these other diets, and I could talk about those if you want to get into them. But when you really look at the science, there's no question. Well, it's interesting that you start from that question, you know, where are the most obese nation? Where are the people the thinnest? Where are they the healthiest? Because it seems like that, that question, which, as you said, can, you know, it, it really can't be answered with a double-blind controlled clinical trial. You can't right. assign Japanese to eat one way and the Finns to eat another way. And so it's always going to be tagged, you know, disparaged as correlational. But just that question makes so much sense. And if people just started there, there would be so much less nonsense in the marketplace, and people would be able to see through so much of the nonsense that already exists. Right. It's common sense, but, but you know, there's not a lot of common sense. Even scientists, like, I, I have to look at the science. It's so funny, and you and I have talked about this, but science 
the science could be so bad sometimes. And so everyone thinks that the scientists should be answering the questions, and certainly the physicians aren't answering the questions. But if you took a physician who was on the front lines of this and had them really study the science with a good scientific background, that's where you're going to get the answers. Because what I see is the scientists miss they're 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 so focused on their one scientific study they're missing the forest for the trees and meanwhile the physicians really aren't even looking at the science they're just looking at their patient and so I felt like I could bring the two together mm. and 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 looking at I me mean, look so you look at Okinawa um, they have the most centenarians in the world the most people live in over a hundred they're extremely healthy culture people live to a really long time, and you you could make the argument that it's genetic until you look at the migration studies. Uh, if they come to America, they're no longer very healthy, and so it must be in their diet. And you look at their diet, 80 to 85% of their diet's carbs, and we're sitting here over in America saying carbs are horrible, carbs are the worst, carbs are terrible. If carbs are terrible, why are they living to 100 eating yams you know, and rice? You know, It just doesn't make sense. Uh, and then meanwhile, you look at the EPIC Panacea study, which is the largest study ever done on on um, nutrition and following people over many years, and and it's pretty clear in that study. Like the, the funny thing I thought about that study, the number one they they followed something like five hundred thousand people for ten years, and they were looking to see what causes weight gain. And the number one cause of weight gain, I mean, the one food that clearly correlated with was meat, specifically chicken. And, it, you know, in America, chicken's our health food. My patients come in, it's like, I don't know why I'm gaining weight. I'm eating a lot of chicken. And yet, you know, there's a study that sh- clearly shows a correlation between chicken and weight gain. And, and this is what, you know, most of our society is missing, is that this idea, I, I think the the central problem in this idea, and we could get into why this evolved to this, but the central problem is that people think carbs are bad and protein is good, and so we eat tons of meat and we don't eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, and that is why we're sick. Mm. Well, so I was just looking at um, the latest you know, sort of ripple to hit my uh, windshield, which is the the salt study. So there was a new study. Um, it was called like, the unsavory truth that sugar is bad for us and, and, and not salt. And yeah. the first thing, the first thing that struck me was why do we gotta compare them? <laughs> That's a good good point. Right? right. Why do we have like, to compare sugar to salt? Like, why do we need you know, both? Yeah, why, why, you know, why it's it's like you're reading a study that's saying getting hit by a car isn't the problem, it's getting hit by a train. Right. You know, so right. I, I mean, okay, go on. Go, go ahead. What's your response? Well, I was going to say, if you want to get really scientific about it, we could get real scientific about it. Um, it, it let's get into the nitty-gritty. This is the problem that our scientists like Lustig and, and, and things like that have. And, you know, I was at the American Society of Bariatric Medicine when I saw you, you know, in the the – head of the bariatric society got up and told people to tell their patients to eat less fruit. If you could have ever imagined anything more stupid. And then he told people they should eat no carbs. He actually said, he got up there and said that carbs are not essential to our body. You got to understand how ridiculous that is because if you believe in evolution, why would we evolve all the processes we have for eating starch? Why would we have insulin in our body if it's so negative for us? And why is our whole our whole energy system is built on the breakdown of sugar? I mean, everything is built down on the break of sugar. There's, he says carbs aren't essential. If you don't eat carbs, you get what's called rabbit starvation and all these other kinds of problems. So he's, he's actually very wrong about that. But here's the problem. He, he does studies, and he puts people on a low-carb diet, and people do lose weight. And he says he cures them of diabetes. But he 
he has not actually cured them of diabetes. What he's done is taken away sugar so they don't know that their diabetes is there. But it doesn't mean that the diabetes doesn't exist. If you were to give them sugar, their sugar would shoot up. The problem is not sugar. There was a great study that showed that sugar does not cause diabetes. If you look at population studies, meat is much stronger correlation to um, diabetes than is sugar. And what is happening, what we're seeing is insulin resistance. That's the problem. And what causes the insulin resistance is what's called intramyocellular fat. So what is happening is fat is getting into the cells of muscles. Now, your muscles are your big burner of calories. Your muscle is what burns sugar. If there's fat inside the muscle cell, the muscle cell can't produce an insulin receptor. If it can't produce an insulin receptor, it's not sensitive to insulin, so your pancreas has to pour out more insulin in order to get the sugar in the cell. Eventually, the pancreas can't put out enough insulin. You've got super high insulin levels and you've got super high sugar levels. But the problem with, the problem with all these, these low-carb guys is they're not getting to the central question. Why are we insulin resistant? And we're insulin resistant because we have too much fat in our cells, and those fat gets into those cells because of a high-fat, high-protein diet. Mm. So it's, it's almost like you said, the, the sugar is like you know we should we should prevent um, fires by taking out the smoke alarms. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, you're you're good at analogies. That's actually a, a very apt analogy. We're we're taking away the alarm, but not taking away the disease. And they're so focused on the sugar level, where the sugar level is the symptom. They're so focused on insulin. Like these guys think that insulin is the is the worst thing in the world. It's a normal thing in our body. The problem is not insulin. The problem is super high insulin you get when you're insulin resistance. The problem, the actual disease we have is insulin resistance. That's what we should be studying, not these, like, how can we hide the insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So what happens? So when we said there was a, Lustig says he can cure his patients of diabetes by re- removing sugar. So he gets them off sugar, and the symptoms of diabetes disappear. But what's still happening underneath? Right, so so these guys go on these really high-protein diets, and um, what happens actually is the intramyocellular fat is still there, so the patients are still uh, insulin-resistant. So they're still – the worst thing about these studies they do is they're not looking at end-organ disease, right? If you if you want to say, for instance, so Dean Orner studies a, veg, a, a vegan diet. He didn't say the vegan diet works because the LDL cholesterol went down. He said a vegan diet works because the actual heart disease went away on angio. So if these guys are going to tell us that the high-protein diet cures heart disease, show me a heart that's gotten better. But they don't do that. What they do is say a, a high-protein diet cures heart disease because HDL goes higher, and HDL is protective of heart disease. The two are not – you know, you can't make that kind of correlation, but that's what they do in all these studies. There's no end organ – they don't have a study that shows that there's end organ improvement. And then they'll say diabetes goes away because – the sugar goes away, the sugar count is lower, and the A1C is lower. Well, that's just silly. You're not giving them sugar. But the problem is not the sugar. The problem is the insulin resistance. So they're still insulin resistant. So if you were to give them sugar again, they would still have it. But what does happen, one of my favorite things is, so um, Gary Tobbs is one of the biggest you know, uh, low-carb guys there ever was. He publishes a study of his labs showing that his lipid levels are normal and therefore his diet must be great. Meanwhile, he doesn't know what he's looking at. His bicarb value is 16, which means he's in metabolic acidosis. And that's what happens with people on these diets. They're in acidosis. They're taking in a lot of acid. 
your body has to buffer that acid, so it buffers that acid in multiple ways. Um, uh, a lot of it could be taking calcium from uh, what we think. We used to think it was taking calcium from bones, and it does do that in part, but it's also taking calcium from muscles. Um, we it's highly carcinogenic, so you're taking in heterocyclic amines, and you're taking in in nitrosamines and and things like that. You're causing gout, and again, we've got end organ studies of that because we know that people that eat higher meat have higher rates of colon cancer and other kinds of cancer. And so, um, so they're doing these really short term studies where, in a short term, they're showing some weight loss and low sugars, but they're not looking at what the long-term result is. And, you know, that's the problem with all this uh, high-protein diets. Well, so, you know, we we live in the era of hacking where, you know, people are doing productivity hacking, but they're also doing life hacking, health hacking. And one of the hacks I see all the time from people in the, you know, the sort of geeky health community you know the 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 quantified life is ketosis right yeah. so that's that's the best way to run your body and it, and it's a hack because not everybody does it not everybody knows about it do you talk a little bit about ketosis what it is why some yeah, people I mean, respond to that right the truth is right so the 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 body is um you know we we've evolved and and succeeded because we're able to tolerate uh, instances of starvation um, and if you think about our ancestors living in like winter times and stuff uh, during starvation, they had to survive. And what they survive on is the fat. The fat's there for an emergency. So our bodies are made to process sugar. That's it, it, it's you can't sugar doesn't turn to fat. It, de novo lipogenesis, which is just turning sugar to fat, is a very difficult procedure for the body to do, and it only does it in calorie excess. Now, if the body gets no sugar. It thinks it's in starvation, and if it thinks it's in starvation, it will start to mobilize fat. When it mobilizes fat, you do drop weight partly because you've you've depleted all of your glycogen stores. If you're not eating any sugar, sugar is stored as glycogen. If you deplete your glycogen stores, glycogen is stored with water, so you get a big water loss. So every low-carb study will show you weight loss over six months. Most of that is water. When you start making ketones, What's happening is your body's breaking down fat, fat, and one of the byproducts of that are ketones. The ketones actually can make you feel pretty nauseated so you're not as hungry, and so you'll tend to eat less. And so you tend to eat less, you tend to lose weight. If you look at the studies, the low-carb people, uh, like there was the recent study out that said low-carb did better than low-fat. Well, the low-carb people were actually, first of all, the low-fat people weren't on a low-fat diet. And second of all, the low-carb people were eating less calories. It basically showed that if you eat less calories, you lose more weight. Um, And they're eating less calories because they're not as hungry and there's not a lot of choices out there anymore. They could just eat steak, chicken, and there's only so much, you know, steak, chicken, and eggs you're going to eat. Now, over time, that ketosis is going to make you feel real sick. You're going to get really constipated. You're going to get a lot of nausea. There's vitamin deficiencies. Atkins used to put his patients on a slew of uh, different um, vitamins and fibers and all kinds of supplements you got to take if you do uh, a ketosis diet. You can't just do a ketosis diet. And eventually, your body's going to say enough. It's not meant to be in ketosis for a long period of time. And I see this all the time in my field because I deal with weight loss. And I have so many patients that come to me because they failed a 
I say they failed. The diet failed them. So maybe every patient I see has been on Atkins or has done a very low-calorie protein-preserving diet. And I see thousands of patients. And they come in, and the sad thing is they feel like failures. They're like, oh, I lost all this weight with Atkins diet, and then I put it all back on. It's my fault. I don't have willpower. But it's not willpower. Our body controls hunger through the hypothalamus, which has no voluntary control to it. And you will involuntarily get hungrier and hungrier and start craving carbs because your body wants to survive on carbs, and eventually you're going to fail these diets. Everybody does. And um, there will be these few outliers. I think there's a few athletes that are trying to do what's called fat-adapted diets, but the, there's, they've never been able to show performance improvement, and the vast majority of people just can't stay on these diets. And it's just not a diet for for a lifetime. The other thing is, in order to stay in a ketosis, you got to eat some really crappy foods. I mean, you've got to really seriously be eating the kind of foods that, uh, number one, increase your acid level in your body, which we know is related to the disease, and number two, take in a lot of carcinogens. I mean, every time you eat meat, you're taking in heterocyclic amines and N-nitrosamines, and you're taking in endotoxins that cause inflammation. I could go on and on and on. So it's just not a healthy way of living. Mm-hmm. So when when we met, one of the things you you uh, invited me to is to come watch you work one yeah. day. So yeah. um, I, I haven't you know taken you up on it yet. I'm a little frightened, honestly. But yeah, tell yeah. tell me what what I would see. What would people see that would have an impact on the way they eat and the way they think about food and health that you just don't get from you yeah. know a book. So it, you know I. I see so many patients. So when you come into a clinic day, all day it's patient after patient. Now you're going to see patients that I've put on diets and I don't say diets. I've helped them change their lifestyle to a plant-based diet. And I love because I, I get like a little graph of what their weight loss is doing and what their um, um, labs are doing and their health. And it's just every time they come in, they're better and better and better. And that's that's very nice. When I see a new patient, it's interesting to see just how sick my patients are. I mean, Five, ten medicines, everyone's got diabetes, everyone's got heart disease, everyone has reflux, everyone has sleep apnea, and they all have the same disease processes. You know, the, the, It's not like these are all separate diseases. They're all tied to what we're eating. Um, a lot of them have had cancer before. And I always do a food log. I get into what do you eat. And I think the interesting thing to note is we eat a lot of protein in this country. We're a very high-protein diet. We eat more high, we eat more protein than any other country, which is why it's so strange to me when people say I got to eat more protein. Uh, you know, we're eating well in excess of what we need, and yet we're told to eat more. And what you'll see is that all the patients are eating a very, very similar diet, which is eggs and bacon for breakfast. They eat sandwich for lunch. They eat. Um, um, dinner will be like a chicken and or, or a steak. And when I ask them, you know, what what do you eat badly? And they say, well, I eat too many carbs. Well, what do you mean by too many carbs? Well, I eat buns on my hamburger, uh, and I'll eat a donut. Now, what, what people don't understand is a donut is not carbs, or a pizza. They'll say pizza. Pizza is not carbs. There's many more fat calories uh, and many more protein calories in a piece of pizza and many more fat calories in a piece of um, – in a donut than there is um, sugar. Uh, it's not really a carb meal. It's much more of a fat meal. Um, and so 
I have to do a lot of training of people to understand that carbs are not bad because people are scared to eat fruit, which is so outrageous. You know, we're the sickest country in the world. We eat the least fruit in the world. I mean, people got to start making these correlations. Um, so, so when, and, when, when people come to you and they've got all these um, disease processes and outcomes, uh, so their their when you say like what's going on, their explanation is well. I keep eating donuts and Snickers bars and pizza. So they, they think it's the carbs. They think if they just stuck to the bacon and eggs and the roast beef, right. maybe with, with less bread or no bread. Right. Th- th- right. When someone tells me they yeah, when someone tells me they've had eggs for breakfast and chicken for dinner and uh and a Subway sandwich, uh, cold meat sandwich for lunch, they're proud of that part of it. That to mm-hmm. them is the successful part. And that's the bulk of their calories and that's the worst part of their diet in my opinion. Uh, and, and so, um, and, and so, yeah, they're, they're like, yeah, I eat all that, but you know, occasionally I have a Snickers bar and sometimes I have ice cream. People are, people are looking at the out, you know, when you feel, you feel guilty when you go and get an ice cream. So that's what they remember. Um, but they think the basic, um, skeleton of their, of their diet is fine. And so I've got to show them that, yeah, look, the donut's not good and the ice cream's not good, but what's really not good is your basic go-to meals every day. Mm-hmm. So I understand that people are, are sort of attributing the problems in their diets to the carbs, but to what extent are they attributing their health problems to diet at all? Do they do they come in thinking there's a connection, or do they just think, well, this is normal, or is, oh no 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 know, yeah look else? if I yeah no you you've hit on something really important we've become so I don't know, accustomed to being ill in this country. Like being ill just is like so like I'll 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 see a patient and I'll work them up and I'll do labs and I'll say, Oh man, you know, I hate to tell you this, but you've got diabetes and they'll just be like, Oh yeah, well my dad had it. That sucks. Okay, well I I got it. Okay, what what medicine do I go on? Like people don't don't make the correlation to food at all. Uh and they 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 certainly don't um they don't even seem shocked by disease anymore. It just seems like something that, like, oh, my dad had it, so I'm destined to have it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it, I've got to explain to them, though, just because your dad had it doesn't mean you need it, and it's directly associated with your food. Now, people kind of are starting to get diabetes and obesity are, are, are part of the food, although they're always like, well, is it my thyroid or is it my this or that? But um, but people don't like cancer. People don't put any correlation between cancer and, and what we eat. That's like really food and cancer that and rheumatoid arthritis inflammatory bowel disease um all these things have been shown to have strong correlations between what we eat but that seems to fall on deaf ears when i tell people gotcha. so so when you made this discovery of the the link between the way we eat and obesity and then this whole constellation of of uh, food related illnesses what did you do personally how easy was it for you to put it into practice what yeah. challenge did you have and what have you noticed <laughs> yeah it was it was really tough because before 35 i had done atkins a few times i was a big i actually wrote a book about weight loss surgery where i told people to eat a zone diet which is a high protein diet and um i ate every every meal was meat as, as long as i can remember um and so um so it was really hard for me. I was like, um, I, I didn't know anybody who was vegetarian. I didn't. All I knew is that every study showed they'd say, you know, by far a plant-based diet is best for your health. But I didn't even know where to turn. Um, I read Dean Ornish's book, and then I read um, Joel Furman's book, Eat to Live. 
Um, and at first I was just like, oh, my God, I'm just going to have to eat veggie burgers. And so I ate veggie burgers every day for God knows how long. Um, but eventually my wife started getting into this, and we started looking at how to cook these you know, more interesting meals. And I started getting recipes, and I started really kind of st- – I actually went to um, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine as a cooking class where they teach you how to be a cook, and I, I now teach my patients how to cook. And pretty soon I learned that it's easy. I mean, now I eat, you know, oatmeal with berries for breakfast or Ezekiel with bread toasted with um, almond butter. And then lunch is a nice, beautiful, big salad with beans and and really colorful and some lentil soup and snack of apple and almonds and dinners like a bean chili or a stir fry. And the weird thing I'll tell you, Howard, is that as I started doing this, I started noticing, first of all, I kept checking my labs because I was very concerned about my cholesterol level. And I'd been told to go on Lipitor and go go on beta blockers. And my blood pressure went down. And every time I checked my labs, my LDL was just kept continuing to go down and go down and go down. And I felt so good. And I, I kept, the more I studied the phenomena, the, I, I started getting into other things, you know, the environment, how does how we eat infect the environment and of course you can't go into this without starting to learn about how you know farming is done now and ranching and what happens to these animals and the cruelty of it and this all started to gel into my mind until i tell people like i can't if you go on a diet you know people go on all these crazy diets and they and they you know how they have cheat days and they'll be yeah. like, okay, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to eat a, cheese, a cheeseburger because I'm on a diet, but I'm going to have a cheat day. I'm going to eat that cheeseburger on Sunday. That's my cheat day. And then all week they dream about that cheeseburger, and they basically are putting the cheeseburger on a pedestal, and they love the cheeseburger, and that's what makes it so hard to diet. I do quite the opposite. I made myself repulsed by cheeseburgers, you know, where cheeseburger was the most disgusting thing, where the thought of chewing on meat and all its, like, gnarliness and and, and um, chemicals and antibiotics and stuff would get in my body and what it would do to my body. Meanwhile, every time I ate a kale salad, I felt amazing. And and what happened is people say, man, you must have a real willpower to do that diet. I don't have willpower at all. I eat – I love my meals. They're, I can't wait to go and get a salad right now. My My whole outlook has changed where I actually crave fruits and vegetables. I mean I, I stopped eating processed junk sugar – now, when I eat a peach, it's the sweetest, most beautiful thing I've ever tasted. And these are the things I kind of try to teach patients. You got to, you could change your taste, and, and my energy levels are through the roof, as you could probably tell. And I, I actually became an athlete. I mean, I, I couldn't run a mile uh, before uh, uh, changing my diet. Now I've done an Ironman, and I've got a marathon coming up, and I, I credit it all to my diet. Yeah, I've seen some of your Facebook posts about you know, you're wearing your, your race gear, and yeah. it it occurs to me that you must, you know, in in your world of bariatric surgery, you must be a huge outlier just in terms of appearance and energy and, and general vitality. Is is, is yeah, that accurate? I am. Now I'll say over the years things are getting better. Doctors are getting much more um, concerned about their health, and I've got doctors emailing me all the time. And when I walk into the uh, um, doctor's lounge, everybody either hides their food or shows me what they're eating. Um, but I'm, I'm <laughs> certainly a humongous outlier in the bariatric surgery as far as my diet. I mean, in bariatric surgery, it's all about high protein. But the interesting thing about that fact is that um, there, 
there's been this kind of resurgence of weight gain in weight loss surgery patients, and a lot of them come to me, and this is very disheartening for them because imagine being overweight your whole life, obese since you're a kid, and almost you're given this glimpse of what life is like not obese, and then all of a sudden you start regaining it. And these patients come in to me, and they're like, my surgeon told me to eat eggs for breakfast and chicken for – I mean the same diet you know, that I see in my patients coming in because they're overweight. And so I'm trying to convince – my bariatric surgery world that these high-protein diets, which have no basis whatsoever in bariatric surgery, it was like someone said they need high-protein, and that's that's been carried on. But, yeah, I'm definitely an outlier uh, for the most part, for sure. Mm. Do, do you find that your patients are intimidated by you, you know, looking slim and healthy and being athletic? Um, do, you, do, you have to, do you have to kind of work hard to – Show them that you're like them in some ways. No, I think um, you know I think that I have a backstory where I wasn't healthy and I used to eat like them, um, and I wasn't necessarily obese, but I certainly had a big belly that I that hid all the time. I was trying to find a pre. I actually do have a pre picture, uh, but it was hard to find one because I never took a picture with my shirt off before. Um, <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> yeah, now I'm like, uh, you got a camera? I'll take my shirt off. Um, and. Um, <laughs> And, and and so, you know, funny thing, I, I kind of think it's quite the opposite. I think the patients like the fact, and, and every doctor should do this, but, you know, I walk the talk. You know, so many doctors, you know, say, oh, you got to eat healthier, and yet they're over. A lot of my patients tell me, my, my doctor told me that I'm fat and that I need to lose weight, but I'm looking at him and he's fat. And and so I think they love the fact that I walk the talk. I'm not telling them to do anything that I don't do myself, and that goes a long way with them. I think that builds up trust. Hmm. So what uh, what is your short term future hold? You know, you're you're kind of in this funny position where you're you're performing these surgeries that. You know, are, are are clearly helpful for the people as they come in, and yet you've had, you know, you've you've lifted your your telescope and you can see upstream where it's all coming from. Do you, do you stay downstream? Do you move upstream? How do you uh, how do you navigate your your new knowledge? Yeah, you're you're catching me, me at my existential uh, location right now, which is um, God, I hate medicines and, I, and I'm starting not to like surgeries. I you know, it, the surgery works too darn well. Uh, if the surgery didn't work so well, it would be, I would say, that's it, I'm done with surgery. Um, but what I'm finding is that it's hard to get people, it's hard to get people's attention and their hearing when they're 400 pounds and, like, immobile. But once I start getting them to lose weight, they really start listening to me. And that's when they really start going on the diet. And then I've got, like, the surgery plus the diet and the patients are just do so phenomenally well. It's just like you can't even believe. You see these people, you would never believe they were ever overweight and sick. I mean, I'm you know, I get rid of all their medicines. Um, and so I like that part of my job. It's very rewarding every day. Plus, I'm also just some people come in and say, look, I don't want to do surgery if I don't have to. And I say, no, you don't have to. Let's try a diet program. If it works, you don't have to get surgery. And so I, I like the position I'm in. But at the same time, I've also... I'm also starting to think more global now. I'm just like, what can we, what can I do to help change things? And I've just recently joined University of Texas so I could do more actual research uh, because more research needs to be done. Um, And I'm getting very active with Physicians Committee with Responsible Medicine where we're working with Congress on 
on different issues and I think probably one day I'd like to expand into, you know, doing just medical um, weight loss, just diet programs. I'm very interested in the work of Dean Ornish and, and what others have done. I would, you know, um, I, I've talked with uh, Dr. Neil Barnard before. I, I would kind of really like to, you know, extend into how can we – the surgery is very effective, but we can't do surgery on every single person that's uh, overweight. In fact, uh, there's something like 15 million to 18 million people in this country that could qualify for the surgery. We can't do 15 to 18 million surgeries. That's, that would be ridiculous. And we got to get at the source of why people are getting there. So I think I'd like to be a little bit more proactive at, at trying to get people to understand how to eat. Right now I go and give talks. I just gave a great talk. It was a really rewarding talk. I was asked to give a talk to a um, a, uh, a place that makes oil drilling bits. I mean, these are the blue-collar workers that are down there making the drilling bits, and they're hard workers, and um, they got their health scan done, like a, yearly they get a, a health test done, and they found that they all had high cholesterol, a lot of diabetes, and they didn't know about it, and they had me come and talk. And I'm telling them about plant-based diets, and these guys are legitimately excited about it. Like, they just had no idea that McDonald's could be making them sick. And I would like to do a little bit more like that. I mean, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. A lot of the people listening to me and on the Facebook pages are the people that already know this stuff. But I really want to get out there to the world in general and have them understand that we are made to eat plants, that eating a high fruit, vegetable, nuts, seeds, and beans diet will make you feel great, live longer. And, and, and I'd really like to get our Congress to start passing farm bills where we're, you know, speaking, putting our money where our mouth is. Mm. Well, I don't know if this is going to help with your, you know, your short-term existential crisis, but to me there's something extremely powerful and compelling about you in the position you're in, advocating the things you're advocating for, continuing right. to do the surgeries, you know, because there, there's, there's an element of credibility to, to some extent, walking away from your bread and butter and saying, we don't, you know, you don't need me. Right. You know, you, the... The solution is more fundamental. Um, you know, that's, you know. Originally, when I when we just started talking, I used the word courageous, and you know, you you balked at that a little bit. Um, but I guess what I mean by that is sort of any, anyone who who does something that would be unexpected given their circumstances. So I look at you know my my co-author Colin Campbell. Growing up on a dairy farm, getting right, you know, right. having a promising career funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the and the animal product industries, helping grow more protein, or Caldwell Esselstyn uh, performing uh, cancer surgeries, like you know, go, it's like the whole inconvenient truth thing about going against going your bread against, and butter, yeah. and and to some right. extent against your community and the and the social norms, and it may you know. I guess that's what I mean by courageous, and it feels like by by keeping one foot there, you have a lot of credibility right. that that folks who just run around doing yoga and telling people to eat more kale may not have. Right, right. No, that's true. I mean, I'm I'm truly in the front lines. I mean, I see all these guys talking. Uh, and talking about diet and this and that, and you know, there, there, there's people online. There's one guy who calls himself the authoritarian or authoritarian. He's a med student. I mean, these people are like have no idea what's going on. I mean, I'm you know 
front line with the the people that are affected by diet and and I see what works and what doesn't and um and so I yeah I never want to give up that I never want to give up the clinical opportunity to be in with patients and and like I said it's I feel like you know for some people the surgery gets them to eat the healthy diet and so for those people it's doing great but I got to tell you I really do get excited when I see a patient that uh isn't you know so huge that that we we have like just that that is so far away from a plant-based diet that we can't do anything, like someone who's just on the border of what we qualify for surgery, and I could convince them not to get surgery, that's my greatest success, you know. Mm. So uh, leaving aside the, the health and psychological benefits, can you, can you talk a little bit about just bottom-line costs, like comparing the costs to treating obesity and, and, and metabolic syndrome and all those diseases with diet versus surgery? I mean, the, I mean, the, it's just, I mean, you can't, the comparison is just so fundamentally, it's outrageous. I mean, for me, to, I mean, one surgical procedure costs about $25,000 um, if you want to pay cash for it at the hospital. Um, and so I've had patients that have come in to get surgery. And and again, granted, I mean, there's people out there that need surgery. You get the surgery. I'm not saying don't get the surgery, but I've had a few people that have been right on. Like, in order, you have to have a body mass index of 40 to get the surgery. You, know, you got a body mass index above 40, you're in the 50s, 60s. The surgery's great. But I've had some people that you know body mass index 39, 40, 41. They're right on the border, uh, and I start talking to them about diet and. They're about to spend, you know, twenty some odd thousand dollars on a surgical procedure. Plus, you know, if there's any complications or issues uh, afterwards, plus getting lab values all the time because you have to get your labs checked after surgery. Uh, and then they go on basically, you know, a zero cost uh, a diet program. I don't really use meds that often. I mean, sometimes I do, but not much. Um, it's really just about going and buying produce, and they're saving themselves. Meanwhile, they go on that diet, they go off their medications, uh, and so in the end, they're actually saving money. Um, and so the cost, the cost of the healthcare system, the costs in general are, are a phenomenal difference. So on, on the front lines, do you see any insurance companies waking up to this? It, feel, it feels like the person who, who figures this out and puts it in the practice becomes a trillionaire. Who creates an yeah. insurance company based on wellness. Right. So the only person who could possibly make money off of a plant-based diet is the insurance company. That, and not necessarily just the insurance company, but the the best would be what are now called the Accountable Care Organizations afford, uh, that are part of the Affordable Care Act or an HMO. I mean, these people make money, right, because they're self-insured, uh, and they're taking a group of people in – they're insuring them, and basically the insurance company or the, the HMO, they make money if the people don't get sick. Every time the person needs a lab or needs to come to the hospital, they're losing money. And and so this makes huge sense for them. And now the country's biggest HMO, which is Kaiser, has actually seen this light. And they are now trying to teach their doctors to teach plant-based eating to their subscribers because they now see that they could save a huge amount of money if people actually went plant-based. They're not telling them to go high-protein. They're not telling them to do an Atkins diet. They're telling them to go plant-based as much as possible. They even I've even heard them at several talks drop the word vegan, which uh, was surprising to me. And so there's a big move by Kaiser to do this. And I'll tell you, once Kaiser does this, the other places are going on. The, the biggest obstacle is 
I don't think the insurance companies even think that anybody would become plant-based. Like it's so foreign. It, it reminds me of, um, you know, Harvard has done some excellent studies on food and nutrition, and um, it, consistently they've shown that plant, people that eat more plants do better than meat eaters. I mean, consistently across the board. And so um, a Reuters asked one of the researchers, Dr. Eric Rim, they said to him, um, I, I notice here that, I mean, consistently plant-based eating tends to be healthier. Why don't you then just tell people to be vegetarian? And he said, well, I mean, I guess we could tell people to be vegetarian. I mean, if we were going by the science, we would, but that's a little extreme. <laughs> You know, and the funny thing about that, Caldwell Esselstyn says, how could vegetarianism be considered extreme? Uh, isn't it extreme to like rip a vein out of your leg and open up, crack open your chest and sew that vein into the heart? Now that's extreme. Uh, and, and I think that's the thing is that people just they they seem to think that diet change is so extreme that no one in America could possibly ever do it, and so they're not going to touch it. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, well, I spent a year in, in Israel in my 20s, and everyone, you know, back in the States was like, aren't you scared of terrorism? And I'm like, you know, no, I'm scared of, like, crossing the street in suburbia. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, the, Yeah, be you scared know, of the, the real things, right? Or, or, or I'm scared of what everybody else around me is scared of. Like, you know, it's like whatever I'm surrounded by seems normal. So if everyone's dropping dead of heart attacks and, and being disabled by diabetes, that seems normal. And yeah, That's exactly right. That seems normal. People aren't scared of heart attacks because everybody seems to get them. They just think it's part of life, and it's completely avoidable. Yeah. Well, one of the things I found really interesting at the, uh, the event we just attended in Austin was, you know, Dr. Esselstyn shared the results of his latest study, and he, you know, he showed how people on this plant-based diet, you know, um, pictures of, of, of uh, you know, angiograms and their, their arteries were regrowing. What was really fascinating was he got 89% of them to keep doing it over like yeah, four, that incredible? four years. And that was the most incredible finding I saw was that 89% followed his diet. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and we are, you know, so like, what did you do? He said, well, I talked to them for five hours with their spouse yeah. in the room. Right. Like he's a you know he's a big guy. I could I could see him, you know, like dressed up like you know Charlton Heston as Moses reading the, right. the Ten Commandments to people. But the, but the fact is we're give, we're we're basing this assumption that people won't try it on, you know, homeopathic doses of bad information. Yeah, very very true. We're, Not we're, only that, we're also basing it on extreme diets, right? So. Uh, and this, I guess people think this is an extreme diet, but here's the thing: is there's no calorie counting, there's no there's no counting anything. You just eat, and the variety of food you eat, uh, like I eat a much wider variety. People are like, oh, there, there's going to be no variety. But tell me about the variety in a meat-based diet. Everyone eats the same thing every day. They eat eggs and bacon and sandwiches and, and steak and chicken. There's no variety. Now I eat a huge variety. Um, and, and yeah, but so, you know, if, if you go to a restaurant, you look at the menu. There's like 48 different uh, meat dishes and dairy dishes, and there's like, you know, if you're lucky, two different vegetarian options, you know, one of them. So to people who don't take it into their own hands or who don't live in, you know, Malibu, 
Right. It really, it really is a limitation. You. But you should, you should, like you said. I always go to the chef, and I always ask them to ask the chef if he can make me, you know, I'm vegetarian or vegan. Can he do something? The chefs love cooking up creative vegetarian meals, and my meals always look better than my friends when we go out to dinner um, because I get really creative. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, when I put people on this diet, the one thing. Um, and I hate calling it a diet. It's not a diet. When I help people change their lifestyle, everyone comes back to me saying, you know, it's just not that hard. They're, they're like, I, you know, I don't miss my steak. I don't miss my meat. Uh, and uh, I feel really good, and so I'm going to keep doing this. I, I seem to find it fairly easy to train people um, how to eat differently. And how do they maintain this diet, this lifestyle in Houston? Do they do they cobble together support? Do you have you know support groups for your patients, or do they? You know, I have support groups for my patients, um, but I mean, I think you know a lot of people um, look and and I, it's not and I try believe it or not, I don't tell people to be vegan. I really don't. First of all, I hate the term vegan because all that means is you don't eat animals. It doesn't mean what you do. You could be a very unhealthy vegan uh, if you know sit there eating chips all day or Oreos or something. Um, I um I I I try to push plants as much as possible. The recipes I give my patients are plant based, um, but I tell them they could use meat as like a side dish or as a additive. And what I find is they become less and less dependent on it. Um, I do a few things with the patients. I have them journal what they eat. Journaling is really valuable, so you keep a journal. Uh, and we go over their journal. And I really want people, because we're so, such subconscious eaters, I want people to become conscious of what they're eating. Um, and then I also have them do these vision boards where I have them take a picture of themselves they don't like and surround that with pictures of foods that they usually eat. So you like your pizza, but here's a picture of your pizza that you're looking at every day, and here's a picture of yourself you don't like, and you know the connection starts to be made. Meanwhile, I have them take pictures of beautiful fruits and vegetables and the kind of things I post on my Facebook page and surround that around a picture that represents their goal that they're striving to. And these kind of things really start to make behavioral therapy changes. And I have them write down their goals. I have them write down if you're going to be faced in a situation, how are you going to handle it? Like if you're going to be facing a situation where pizza is served at the office, what are you going to do? Know about that before you get there. And all these things get together, they make the patient feel fairly comfortable. I mean, most of my patients that go through my program and listen to me, they're, they're not vegan, but they're eating a hell of a lot more fruit and vegetables than they used to eat, and they find it easy. They don't find something that they need a lot of support to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling because I'm trying to – I'm thinking about, like, what day of medical school did you learn this stuff? <laughs> Days, yeah, no day. Uh, there was no day. This is all learning myself. I actually learned a lot of that from Judith Beck, who actually in, her father invented a cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was looking through the research because, you know, we have a psychologist in our office, and a big part of bariatric surgery is going through the psychology of weight change and psychology of how you eat and all that stuff. And I'm looking over the research because I'm like, we got a psychologist here. We have to pay for all that. Is it? Is there you know, evidence-based medicine that it works. And it turns out there's zero evidence-based medicine that anything in psychology or psychiatry works except for cognitive behavioral therapy. So I started looking at what cognitive behavioral therapy was and ran it to uh, Judith Beck's book, which is called Beck's Diet Solution, which is a fantastic book. I mean, really, really, your listeners, if they're trying to lose weight, I think Beck's book is great. She doesn't say anything about diet. 
um, although it's called Diet Solution, but it's all about how to change behavior. And uh, I've used a lot of her teachings uh, with my patients. But yeah, self-taught, <laughs> not not taught at all in medical school. <laughs> Sadly well, enough. Well, but uh, you know, it sounds like you're you're a pioneer. You're on the the front lines. There's plenty of people who have those skills, but no credibility or opportunity to apply them where where it counts. Um, so you know. Bravo for for sort of cobbling stuff together and and being willing to look at yourself and at the assumptions of your profession and 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 getting out there and you know I didn't I didn't I didn't discover you because I'm a a bariatric surgery patient I discovered you because you're out there you know vocally and passionately advocating for for something that can really save lives and make this world a much better place. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I don't feel like I feel like I'm doing what I like what a doctor should do. Like I don't I don't know, it doesn't feel I know you use the term courageous and I'm and I am fighting up a stream, believe me. I could tell you some stories that are just crazy, but but it just seems feels like the natural thing to do. It feels like what any doctor should do. I'll tell you most people like a lot of people say, "Well, doctors don't do anything about diet because they just want to keep us sick." I don't know any doctors that want to keep that, that want to keep anybody sick. They just truly don't know. You know, it's just it's just truly when I speak to doctors, they they just don't know about diet. They 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 see the same thing everybody else does. All this conflicting bad science and they're just like look i'm not going to even think about diet i got a pill i know it works that's what i'm going to give somebody i was never taught diet i don't know how to and you know in this day and age of doctors being so busy they just don't have time to even go into diet and so it's not like doctors or the healthcare profession wants to keep people sick even though we certainly don't try to keep people healthy it it just hasn't been taught in med school and that 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 discussion is going on too how do we get med schools to change and that's going to be that's going to be a real big change is when you get the young doctors changing right well i imagine kaiser and and uh, you know hmos like that will have some muscle to flex cuz right right now it seems like there are disincentives in the form of potential um malpractice lawsuits for people who don't follow standard, if we don't prescribe first. Yeah, I mean, that was even brought up to me because I run a medical weight loss program and I run a surgical weight loss program. And my medical guys do great, but you, you can't compare to the surgical, right? And, and it's unfair because my surgical get what my medical people get plus the surgery, right? So it's not like I'm doing a surgical program and then giving them a the high-protein crappy diet. I'm actually giving them a plant-based diet after surgery. So my surgery patients do so phenomenally well that they outperform my medical patients, which, of course, they're going to because they're both on the same diet but one's had the surgery. And so it was brought up to me that isn't that malpractice to take a group of people and you know if you did surgery on them, they would do better, but you're not doing surgery on them. Shouldn't that be? And now I have to and, – and look, it would be – I can't imagine getting – for that, but uh, but I do tell my medical weight loss patients, look, we're going to go on this little journey, and it's going to be very successful, but it's going to be slow, and you do have to understand that surgery does have better results if you want to get surgery. That's still an option, so I have to go through that discussion with my patients just so they're you know completely 
and, and, and it's crazy that we should that that should ever be the case. And you know now there's on the medical side, there's like this. I, I take people off meds. That's my goal is to take people off medications. But there has been a standard of care set that no one is to ever go off Lipitor. Mm. You, you know that right? That like the, they came out with it doesn't matter how low their cholesterol goes, they should stay on Lipitor. And so I when I take people off Lipitor. I get nervous because if I take them off Lipitor and they were to get a heart attack, I have gone against standard of care. But Lipitor has been shown to increase diabetes. Lipitor causes myalgias. It's got a whole host of side effects. I don't want my patients on it if they don't need it. If their cholesterol is normal, why do they need Lipitor? But the standard of care is that they should stay on Lipitor. Right, well, it's that, that recurring theme of this conversation is about whatever is normal. So you know, standard right. care just means what the other doctors around you are doing. Right. Just just like in animal farming, you know, acceptable farming practices is what everyone else is doing, regardless of right. the the reality. Right. Yeah, we walk around like robotrons, just doing what we're told to do. But you know, bucking the system does involve you know you're doing something out of standard of care. You're legally liable. Right. Well, and the last thing I want to ask you about is. Um, at the uh, opening night of this uh, conference, um, the New York Times food writer Mark Bittman spoke. Um, he was interviewed, and you and I were in the audience. Um, and you got up and kind of tr- took the New York Times to task for their their inaccurate food reporting. I didn't I didn't I didn't know you as well then as I have come to. Um, and what what I what I am hearing as I replay that is you on the front lines, like, really fighting for your patients and fighting for health and and just being really passionate about the ways in which very, very powerful institutions that should know better are contributing to, to misery. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, so I'll sit down with a patient and I'll start going over diet. And they're like, what about butter? Well, no, 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 you can't have butter. Butter's bad for you. But the New York Times and Time Magazine said it was good for me. You know, and so I've got to battle the New York Times, and somehow the New York Times is supposed to have more credibility than me on these things. And um, you and I have talked about this, but they they got those studies so wrong. I mean, it's it just they you know they they've got to lead with the sensational, and and so they they go to the conclusion of the study, they read the conclusion, they never read the study. I mean, they're not gonna they don't have the wherewithal to understand the complexities of a scientific study. It's taken me years to learn how to read a scientific study, and a lot of social media is having a problem with it too because they go on PubMed and they look up an article and they just look at the abstract and they don't look at how the study was written, and and so well you got to pay they, for everything else. You abstract. Yeah, you got to pay for it, so they can't even get it uh and so they've never read the study they don't know anything about it and but they come up with a sensational headline so there here's the thing that says eat butter now the study never said eat butter it never even said saturated fat was good for you it just simply said maybe saturated fat isn't as bad as we thought and as you and i have talked before but the studies were, were horrible i mean they they were looking at people that were eating saturated fat, but we're on Lipitor and saying, well, these people are eating saturated fat, but they don't have high cholesterol. Well, of course they don't. They're on Lipitor. I mean, it was like really bad studies. Or this person on a low-fat diet did worse, but then you look at it, they're not even eating a low-fat diet. So it was a terrible study that never concluded that butter is good for you, and yet the New York Times runs an article about how we should rethink fat and 
the the picture on it is a big cheeseburger, which is exactly what I'm trying to fight against every day, and they just make my job harder without even knowing it. And I just think it's irresponsible on their part. Hmm. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, <laughs> this this one area of media where I have some insider expertise, like, do they train their political reporters, their economic reporters? Like, I, I think maybe the only part of the New York Times that I trust now is the sports section. Yeah. Okay. Right. Like, like, I think the people who write for the sports section are, are sufficiently trained to understand what they're seeing. Right, but cer- right. certainly in, in science and health, you'd think that, um, you know, and, and I don't know, I'm not exactly sure whether it's, some of it seems to be just simply poorly trained, but part of it is the, the reductionist paradigm, where they're, they're very good at a certain type of analysis, but they've never been taught to see the bigger picture. Yeah, they have no idea how to read a meta-analysis. I mean, I've got this this whole journal article from JAMA in front of me about how to read a meta-analysis. They've never read that. They don't know. They don't even know what a meta-analysis truly is. And they think that just because there's been – this is their biggest mistake, that just because there's been a meta-analysis means that there's a fact out there. I mean, there's millions of studies out there, so one study does not make a fact. And like you know, Mark, Mark Bittman said, well, we've got to report the news. We've got to report when a, a study's been done. And – I'm like, well, okay, then report all the studies that have been done on plant-based diets. Report the EPIC study that shows that people live longer if they're plant-based. I haven't seen a single report on the Adventist 2 health study. Actually, I have, Chicago uh, Tribune ran one. But but they're not reporting, you know, when good science that tells you to eat fruit and vegetables comes out because that's just boring. It's no right. fun if, it, if it's a dog bites man. Right, yeah. But I mean, to tell people to put a picture of butter on Time Magazine, they know they're going to sell that. People want to people want to hear butter is good for you. Uh, but sorry, people, it just ain't. <laughs> All right. Well, any, anything else I didn't ask you about that you wish I had? Huh. Um, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I think we got a, a pretty good a pretty good discussion about all the pertinence right now. All right. Well, I uh, I reserve the right to ask you back because I know there's a lot more stuff that I would sure. uh, love to chat with you about and I, I will we'll continue conversations offline and then bring them back online for folks but uh, if people want to get in touch with you to, to read your writings to right. stay in touch what's the best way yeah the, I, I write a lot on um, Dr. Garth on Facebook that's where I do most of the writing um, that's where I really um, where I really kind of try to put you know, pen to paper about what the different science articles are and stuff. I try to answer as many emails as I can, although sometimes I get overwhelmed. I cannot give any like personal medical advice online, though. So people just need to need to know that I can't specifically talk about your personal medical problems. But um, um, that's where I do most of my talking. All right. So if you go to Facebook.com, just look for Dr. Garth. Dr. Garth. Yeah. Dr. Or Doctor. No, D-R, D-R-G-A-T-R-H, Dr. Garth. And um, I also have a website, thedavisclinic.com, but that's more about how to come in if you wanted weight loss surgery or medical weight loss. Okay, and is that for folks in the Houston area mostly? In the Houston area. Yeah, I I do people from out of the Houston area too if someone wanted to travel. Um, Okay. They can come down. All right. Well, you know, Dr. Garth on Facebook is is pretty much the first place I go when I see a new study that I just know has problems because within within a couple of days you will be all over it. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of other sources I check out and I ask 
I, I asked one of my medical researcher friends to, you know, shoot me the PDF on the slide, so I don't have to pay for it. But uh, yeah. you know, you're you're the you're ground zero for for intelligent critique of no, bad, si- bad science for me, and I hope for lots of other people as well. Um, so, Garth, thank you so much for taking the time, and no I wish thank you, you for having me. I wish you all the best. All right, take care, Howard. Bye bye.